Hey, Collaborist. I'm Ben Leroy. And I'm Jason Buckholz. And you're listening to Collabracast. How's it going, Jay? It's toasty. It's warm. I'm 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 hot. <laughs> you and me both. What kind yeah. of what kind of mercury race you got going on out there? We're yeah, we're triple digits out here, which is pretty rare since we're sitting along the bay and uh, usually keeps us chilly. So for those of you watching on YouTube, uh, you'll probably see me develop something of a sheen over the course of this. So I'd recommend you just don't watch. <laughs> Or they might be suffering themselves wherever they are. So it's all in solidarity as we take on the heat bubble. We're also, (laughs) I I think the official mercury was in the high 90s here in in the Madison area. But my car just as recently as an hour ago had it at 103. So that's what I'm choosing to believe it was. It's gross. It's really gross outside. It's take the wind out of your chest hot out there. Yeah. It's uh, makes it hard to do much of anything. Last week after we got done recording, we had, we had bad storms on Monday and then we had bad storms on Wednesday. And at some point in all of that, an attic window at my house got blown open. And now there are wasps building a big, big uh i i guess it's like a, a housing complex like yeah uh-huh. not, it's just not a nest or a hive it's yeah, they got some they got some delis and cafes yeah. on the bottom floor they some they got office the office buildings in the mid-tier yeah this is commercial and they're yeah in the low floor residential <laughs> and above so i've got a guy coming over tomorrow to negotiate with them and their <laughs> departure Check their zoning, check their permits. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. The building inspector is coming. I, I am very hesitant to disrupt the life cycle of an ant or a fly. I will try to usher them out of the house instead of killing them. But I seriously and legitimately have actually heard wasps buzzing in the walls the last couple of days. And so there's a part of me, it's like, I'm going to have to go on the offensive a little bit on this one. And I hope that this guy can be like the Peter, the Pied Piper of uh, the wasps and get them relocated to a different place. But I might have to turn, uh, might have to, to cover my eyes and pretend that I don't know what's really going to happen to them. Okay, and these are not honeybees. Of, some type of wasp vacuum and he can take them off to a, a pasture yeah. somewhere <laughs> yeah they're going out to a farm they're gonna love it fly <laughs> free wherever they are i know i know this these folks are just dying to have a colony of wasps <laughs> they've been trying to have their own colony ah you're just gonna make their day i drove so, by we were on the road yesterday and there was a uh truck the company is yeah i don't mind it's a local business here mr raccoon And their tagline was, it was animal exclusion and eviction services. So it's, it's, it's a no kill service. I like the animal exclusion. Yeah. Like, I like the, the, I wonder how long it took them to come up with that. 
it's here. Here's the thing, though. I just was having this discussion because there was a dead possum in the yard and someone had to come and remove it. And uh, the language that he used also included when talking about the area beneath the deck that they would set up basically metal metal steel spikes that go outward so that no raccoons or possums could claw through it and make a home. And they use the, the exclusion word as well. So that must be the terminology within that industry is mm-hmm. this is the exclusion stuff. And, and their whole thing was, we're just going to make it so they can't get in and then that's it. So that's, that's kind of just saying, sorry. Sorry, sorry guys, move along here. You're, <laughs> yeah. you're not on the list. You're, you're... <laughs> <laughs> but in my, in my higher version of myself, I am St. Francis of Assisi and I've got raccoon friends and possum friends and they, they crawl on my shoulder and we have conversations and it's a, that's an important thing to aspire to. Yeah. And I definitely, the older I get, the more I feel called to that way of, of looking at things. I have a, a cat named Suzette who has is, is her second day of finding dead mice, though, too. So I have complicated feelings about the ethics of cat owning. That And the cat thinks it's giving you a gift. So the cat's trying to do. She does. She's very proud of herself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the kids love her, but <laughs> I, I, I have, I, I believe or have read that domestic cats are the most prolific predators in North America. Especially of songbirds. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not good. No, that's not, that's not, that's not uh, like I said, though, com- the ethics get complicated and pet ownership, particularly those cats, which I don't think are really pets that can be owned to begin with she just kind of eats here and then goes out and hunts for things that she doesn't need to eat because i feed her what there's are you a do? certain a certain lack of logic that must must primarily be a manifestation of ego it's just the i don't need your food watch what i can do like right. i am capable yep i still I have the siberian tiger dna i'm ready mm-hmm. for it this could be you too if I weren't six pounds. <laughs> Just so you know. If I eat enough of these mice and bulk up on the protein, you better watch it. Um, that sounds crazy and far-fetched, this whole idea that a cat could kill you. It reminds me of, you know, like, what if? What if a cat could do that? Which is a really natural segue into what, what we we're going to talk about today. We're, I just, we're going to need a super cut of our segues at some yeah. point, just got to say. Yeah, and it should probably be sponsored by Shed Spread or something, because it is smooth like butter, though it is not <laughs> actually like, like butter. I wanted to um, tip my hat to you. A few episodes back, you were going over, I can't remember who the author was, but we were talking about how his novels were the extension of what-if questions and, and some of them were as imagined by like a grade school kid. Like, what if, like, what if this happened? And that was Jose Saramago 
Portuguese writer, Nobel Prize winner. I talked about the books Blindness and The Stone Raft in particular, um, both of which, and this is not, I haven't read anything that he has said about those. This is just from having read them, there is such a, a simple what if premise at the core of those books in particular. I've read several other of his books, I love him, but those two in particular, Blindness, what if everybody went blind at the same time? The stone raft is what if the Iberian Peninsula broke off from France and drifted across the Atlantic? So, um, yeah, those were it was just really striking, those, those origins for me. And that's what we're talking about here today is, is where do ideas come from? Having been around many writers in my life, and having been at many writing conferences, I know that it is a familiar enough question for people to be asked, where do your ideas come from? Or sometimes what happens, and I think every single person who has ever announced themselves as a writer has had this situation happen, where some well-meaning, sometimes inebriated person will be like, oh, 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 I've got the best idea for a book. And so like, I can give you this idea and you write it, but we'll totally work together on it. And I've heard so many writers respond by saying their problem isn't an absence of ideas. They're, they're quite capable at coming up with ideas for a book. But I thought if there's enough people who find this process mysterious, then maybe we can tackle, tackle it. And you, in all of your wisdom, had an idea about a direction that we can go in future episodes of the podcast. And could you elaborate a little more about what you're thinking? Yes, I thought it would be helpful to run through several different aspects of novel writing and to to just do a series on the protagonist the antagonist settings scene building plots um etc and just kind of go through all of the major components of of novel writing and discuss those discuss our own experiences with those talk about some notable notable examples out there um just to to provide listeners with a, a, a foundation for, for each of these different aspects. So dear collaborists in the listening audience, the next few episodes of the podcast will be jumping into these topics and more. If there are particular things that you are super interested and want us to explore, please feel free to either put a comment wherever you're listening or watching this, or just send us an email at info at collaborist.org and we will get that and we will address it. I'm gonna put you on the spot to begin. Do you remember the first time that you had an idea for a novel that you actually made an attempt to write and maybe it wasn't a full draft but where you thought to yourself okay I, I think I've got something here 
I do. I remember it quite clearly. And I, I talked about this a bit. I think it was our, our second episode ever when we were talking about how we became, how, how we got into this racket to begin with. Um, so this was a novel that did not and will not see the light of day, but I did write this. I wrote it. I wrote a complete novel. And then this was, I, I, this is kind of what preceded the, my decision to go and get an MFA as I went through this process and realized that I had been fumbling around in the dark. So I enrolled in an MFA program, took that novel into it, ran it through however many workshops and tried to incorporate however many different people's opinions in it. And it, it, so that was kind of the, 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 my first experience with novel writing, but the, 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 it, it, it really was in this case, a what if story. Um, and it was, I was, I was hiking the Inca trail. I was in, in Peru hiking the Inca trail with a, a couple of American, I think it was a group of three that I had met in Lima. And if, if I'm not remembering this very clearly, it's because it was 20 years ago now. Um, we were hiking the Inca trail to Machu Picchu. And, and I'm mentioning that because it's extremely high altitude. So this was a, a decision, <laughs> my decision to try to write a novel definitely was a result of oxygen deprivation. So I'm just saying that that, that that can be helpful. So we're hiking this trail. It's excruciating. It's steep. It's very high altitude. And we were just chatting with each other. We had just met there and we were, were just chatting with each other to pass the time to keep our minds off of the discomfort that we were in and trying to do this very difficult hike. Um, and there was mention of a South Park episode uh, that had to do with the Loch Ness Monster. And one thing just kind of led to another. And in the synthesis of this, these, these really lighthearted and playful conversations, um, I found myself wondering, well, what if, what if you had this little town who invented a monster hoax? To try to break, you've got a you know perhaps a, a, a mountain town with a, a falling apart economy, and they concoct the idea to generate some kind of monster hoax to try to generate tourism and get people to come and visit, and so on, and and that was it. And so I went from there, and I wrote a whole, you know, I developed characters and plot and everything from that point. But it it really came from a moment of, of play, a playful moment. And, and just like Saramago, it's, it's, it's playful. It's like, what would happen if everybody went blind? And it's as simple as that. And then obviously the exploration of that, I mean, for him, he took that and he turned that into a Nobel prize <laughs> in, in the, you know, the depth that he explored that and, you know, what it could and would mean. Um, but it, it really, you can see the, the origin there in, in a very playful place. What about you? Likewise, I have a hard time remembering much in the way of the plot. One, because as I've already said before, my memory is trash, except in the moment. But the first full novel I wrote, I have a copy 
I have a, a printed out copy that I put in a three ring binder, which is the closest thing to a book that I could, that I could do in 1997-ish, somewhere around there. So that's what, 25 years ago? I remember, I, I think the crux of it was what if we're wrong about global warming? LOL, clearly we're not because we're both burning up today. But what if we're wrong about global warming and instead there's global cooling coming? And I'm sure that there was something about greedy capitalists uh, as part of this plot. There was perhaps a scientist who had figured something out but was being ignored by the public. And then I did find out that this actually is a thing where when the ice caps melt, then um, with more fresh water in the oceans, it alters the Gulf Stream. And that's how we got the Little Ice Age, um, I think 10 or 12,000 years ago. That, so, so it happens that we actually get these periods of global cooling. There was one year, I can't remember, and our producer is not here because we don't have a producer, but there was one year within the last like thousand years or the last 2000 years, the year where there was no summer. And it just like, it can happen that there are weird times where things don't go as expected. I remember obsessing about that novel. It has a very angsty title. Beyond Bitter, the Downstortion Apocalypse Theory, which, which just rolls right off the tongue. <laughs> I remember very little about it. I know that I worked on it earnestly, and I know that it came from a well, what if and what if and what if. I know that the what if becomes an addicting and intoxicating thing for me because just the mental exercise of here's how things are, but they don't have, there's no natural law saying that they have to be a certain way. What if X happens is a fascinating game and you can really zone out on it. I think that's a really rich vein. Um, Philip Roth's The Plot Against America is you know, the revisionist histories, I think, are really interesting, novelized revisionist histories. And The Plot Against America was, um, he starts with the question, what if Charles Lindbergh had been elected president? Charles Lindbergh had ties to, um, and I don't, I know the premise of the book, but I actually haven't read it. I haven't done, I, I, I'm, I'm speaking from a, a very cursory knowledge of this area, but Lindbergh uh, had some ties or sympathies uh, with the bad guys in World War II, let's say. And um, so Philip Roth being a you know Jewish American writer is, is, is fascinated in, in 
those dynamics. And so he starts with the question, well, what if what if Lindbergh, who was a national hero here, had managed to be elected president, then, you know, what becomes of of this country in such an such a case? I worked with a um, a client several years ago who also had a revisionist World War Two novel. Um, and it was if I don't remember exactly what the tweak was, but it was America not having been involved. I think it was maybe the Pearl Harbor didn't happen. And so we, you know, we don't go to war there. And then, and then, you know, what, but so, yeah, I think that can be really interesting, a really interesting way of thinking about things. And it's just one little tweak and then it, you can explore all, all sorts of things. It's incredible to me in the same way that a blank page can be intimidating that people do have a hard time coming up with ideas. And I think part of it's because we think there must be some secret code or rules associated with idea generation. And there's not, I, I co-host a writing retreat in Salida, Colorado in the fall every year. And last year, local, artist and all around fascinating human being Carl Ortman had he opened up his painting studio to people who wanted to come and try painting so there were a bunch of authors who are not painters but who are working in a creative field and they were given a blank canvas and paint and I watched people be intimidated to the point of inaction by having it because they were worried about doing it wrong. They were worried about painting wrong. They were worried about, well, what if this isn't the right color? This isn't the right brush. And Carl's whole thing, and what I would say the same thing with writing is there, there is no wrong. You're just, you're just getting something going. You're getting, you're getting, it's Newtonian physics meets art is what it is. And it's, you got to get your creativity in motion is what it comes down to. Yeah. And then all of the other things that go into it can come in time. Like you and I have had conversations about how things have happened several drafts into a project where you've written, we were what talking a couple of days ago and I, speaking of putting people on the spot, have just read a, a, a major portion of your novel in progress. And you were telling me that there were that that two thirds of the characters that I was reading were not even in that in the first iterations of that. And I've had I've had similar experiences. And as with Saramago, you start with that one simple question. And there's a lot of steps that you go through after in between that question and the Nobel Prize for Literature. But those things are, it's methodical at that point. You can kind of, like you said, you just need a place to start. You just need to ask a question. For me, a paper son came from some family history. I started digging into some family history. I heard a couple of interesting stories. I said, all right, I got to do something about this. And then however many years later, after pulling some ideas in and tossing other ones out, you end up with a novel. Um, Frankenstein came, sprang from boredom. 
Mary Shelley and her compatriots were traveling and they were bored and they started, they decided to entertain each other with horror stories and ghost stories. And that's where Frankenstein came from. The Twilight series came from a dream. Stephanie Meyer had a, a dream that she found to be compelling. And then she turned that into the Twilight series. Tolkien was grading papers. And then he, so this is, a little bit harder to relate to is <laughs> this particular story. He was grading papers and then came across a blank piece of paper and he wrote like almost dream writing or automatic writing, wrote the sentence in a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. At that point, he did not know what a hobbit was. That sentence just came from nowhere. And, uh, you know, next thing we know, we've got massive trilogies being shot in New Zealand and <laughs> all sorts of things that, that spin out of that. But, but these origins are often very, very humble. Um, just little sparks, sparks that turn into conflagrations. And, and I, I, I really believe that really anything can develop into something with the with the care and attention sometimes you don't always go in the right direction as you're going through that process sometimes you gotta rip it up put it away and and retrace your steps and go back 20 decisions and and try a new direction but but there but every i think every interaction every you know so many different things can provide the the spark for for something really moving and powerful to to come from it even just having you say that first line of Tolkien like my brain disconnected from our conversation was like oh my god what a wonderful way to start something and like how many different variations and questions just just that one sentence raise and then each one of those questions is a place where it's like okay we'll go explore that go look down that way go see what that's all about do you ever find yourself coming up with an idea starting it and then feel the idea evolving into something else and then feel still beholden to the original idea? And if so, how do you get rid of that initial sense of being beholden? That's very much what happened to that first novel that, that I wrote. Um, it, it turned into, uh, it started out in this very playful, lighthearted sense you know, this is going to be a town. They concoct this, you know, my, I had my main character was the kind of an elderly mayor. Um, I was thinking along the lines of like a John Irving type, uh, you know, really kind of a, a serious examination of human nature, but, but not like weighty literature, not like, you know, literary fiction, you know, not, not you know, not, not, MFA type stuff, not University of Iowa version. <laughs> right, exactly. It was, you know, it was, it was conceived. It was this, you know, playful, entertaining thing. And and as I, I the first drafts of it were were true to that. Um, and then I took that into an MFA program. And then next thing you knew, it was about grief and death and 
you know, all of these other sorts of things. And, um, and I worked on it all throughout that program and then came out of it and then, and then wrote another draft. And, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to do that, that draft because I had learned so much. I had heard so many voices. I'd gotten so much input and feedback over the course of those years that I wanted to give myself a chance to synthesize much of that and then do yet another draft. And as I was writing my way through that final draft of that manuscript, I realized I was like, this, this has come so far in a bad way, <laughs> like this thing has like not, oh, this has evolved so much, but this is, this is something that has become completely unrecognizable from the spirit that these characters were originally conceived in. This is, this is something that's very much trying to be something that it was never meant to be. And so at that point, when I came to that realization, it, it was easy to let it go. And I set it aside. And then I, I also realized that in order to really put into, and, and there are many opinions about MFAs. I, I loved my program. Um, I, I know that there are a lot of people who, who it's controversial. Um, I think any, any teaching of art is controversial, especially one that you might spend quite a bit of money on, which I did. Um, and, and I would never presume to tell somebody else whether that route is right for them or not. I can only speak to my own experience, which was really exceptional. Um, and you and I met because of a mutual, because of Robin Russell, who I met in that program. Um, and as did many other people, as many other connections that I made, people that I met who are continue to be actively integral to my writing process, um, both fellow students and, and teachers. But um, I realized at some point that in order to really take all of that information that I had gotten and all the things and, and, and to really explore my own evolution as a student of writing, I was really going to need to start from scratch. I was really going to need to, to command N the, the situation and um, go from there. And that's when I wrote A Paper Sun. Do you feel like, do you ever have moments of feeling like you've wasted time when you get to a point where you recognize this draft is not what there's no point in moving forward on this draft. I've hit the usefulness of this draft. Do you feel like you've wasted time or do you feel like it was productive because it got you to where you are? I, I never feel like it was wasted time. I do struggle with, with wanting to, I have a little bit of uh, throwing the baby out with the bathwater um, sentiment where I'm like, ah, but there's some really good stuff in here. And I just, maybe I can pick those things out and do something else with them. I have, I have, when I, even when I'm editing, when I'm editing my manuscripts, I have, I always, so I have my, the document up, I have my, my file open. And then I have another file that I always call the cutting room floor. And it, it's obviously a film, the film editing metaphor, as it, when people actually were 
cutting and splicing actual physical film. Which is nuts to think about, like what it required. <laughs> right. Sitting there with scissors and tape. Um, but I will take out when if I write a chapter, if I write a passage or something and and I know it no longer belongs in that manuscript, but I can't bring myself to just delete it. I transfer it over to this document. And and that is, you know, I think the one that I have going right now on my novel in progress is it's the length of a novel itself or or, you know, close to it. Um, and chances are I'll probably never do anything with it, but it's there. It could serve as inspiration. It might, there might be a character or two that didn't make the cut for one particular project that gets plucked out and, and used elsewhere. Um, so. Yeah. It's just like in life, people show up and we think that we're going to have an association with them based on one thing. And that doesn't happen. And then later on, we rediscover it. Oh, they're also really good at horseshoes and we can go play horseshoes. And like characters can also show up in the wrong book, in the wrong place, in the wrong setting. Or support characters can show up in one book. And then later on, we realize that characters actually got a fascinating story that would allow them to be the protagonist of a book. So let me go back and revisit with them. It's, it's a fascinating process. It really is. I'm wondering if we might present some sort of challenge to the collaborists in the audience as far as, you know, do, do people, do people want to submit their what if or their opening lines to something that doesn't exist before you were listening to this conversation, it doesn't exist, but just, just write down a what if and, and write down an opening line and see what do people come up with? Let's do that. Yep. Let's, and let's, you know what? Let's lay that out there. I think because collaborators are in the audience, but we're also collaborators, you and I should also come up with a what if. It's not a project that we're working on right now, but just a, we just have a week to come up with a what if and just, just do it. See, see, Stephanie, I know you're out there. Give us a what if. Um, Gina Marie's out there. Give us a what if. <laughs> Give us a what if, people. If you, Steve Weddle, you're out there. Steve Weddle, give us a what if. Steve Weddle, who is uh, a fine, fine novelist called Dazzling by the New York Times. Steve has been listening to the podcast and sent me a note to let me know that he had. So I appreciate that, Steve. Now send us a what if. A dazzling what if, please, Steve. Yes, yes, definitely. <laughs> I love a dazzling what if. I don't have anything more, but next week, what do you suggest we should, we, should we next week maybe begin with how do you open a book? What are the do's and don'ts of opening a book? Because there is conventional wisdom about that. And I'm going to be all mum about it right now because I don't want to spoil next week's content, but there are definitely do's and don'ts as far as when to open a book and how to open a book. So should we just kind of pencil that in is that's what next week's episode of collaborative cast is about 
Start at the beginning. Sounds like a plan. All right. Do you have anything else, Mr. Buckholtz? I do not, but I'm looking forward to uh, to the what ifs and to getting deeper into this. Likewise, if you enjoyed listening to this episode of CollaboraCast or any other episodes, please feel free to rate and review wherever you are consuming it. If you are on YouTube, we love reading your comments. And if you need help, editorial, ghostwriting, brainstorming, any of that stuff with your novel, we are available to do so. You can see more about services provided by Collaborist at www.collaborist.org. And I think that's pretty much it. For story. For community. Collaborist. Collaborist. It's hot out. It's really hot out.